you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. Is there trouble brewing in IPO land? Why one of this year's most highly anticipated debuts might pull the plug on going public? We've got the details ahead. Plus, Beyond Meat getting grilled after one Wall Street analyst slapped a sell rating on the stock. You'll hear from the man who made that call. And later, the big battle brewing between Netflix and Disney. What Netflix needs to do to come out on top of the streaming wars. But we begin with what had been a big week for the Bulls. Trade optimism fueling a rally. The S&P 500 now just over a percent and a half away from a new all-time high. And take a look at some of this week's standouts. Semis surging more than 4% for their best week in about two months. Retail rocking, gaining 3% on the week. And one stock smack dab on the front lines of the trade war, Caterpillar, clawing back for a gain of just over 3%. So trade optimism seems to be back, but is it enough to sustain this rally? Guy. You know, sometimes you find yourself like a salmon swimming upstream. You mean the fish salmon? Right. Okay. Well, there's an L in there. Yeah. And so, and I, Tim and I, salmon. Thank you, by the way. Tim Salmon played for the Angels. Yeah. And I, I feel as I if I am one now. I am swinging upstream and it feels futile. But I'll, I, again, I have to sort of stick to my guns here. And I still think that the headwinds are still out there. And, they, and I still think the market's due for a significant sell-off. I mean, I know there's trade optimism. I get it. And I know this time the tweet came from the Chinese, not from President Trump's Twitter account. But with that said, you know, I just think it's delaying the inevitable. And the inevitable is they get to the table and they walk away with no deal. And I think that's somewhat negative for the market going forward. Yeah, I mean, listen, so we, we had a bit of a rally over the last couple of days. We're one and a half percent from all time highs. But we really haven't gone anywhere in 18 months. And we've seen this it's over and over again, where you get close to some kind of trade deal because the stock market sold off. The U.S. president then goes and says, hey, let's get a little bit close. Then everybody kind of comes together and they pull the rug out again. And I think that the same thing's going to happen. But again, I still think you have to have the mental model that the trade war is going to go on at least until the 2020 elections and it's continue to grind on the economy. So, you know, I don't know if the stock market goes down a heck a lot more, but I know we probably go sideways until 2020 elections. But even as trade war concerns persist as time goes on, which Jerome Powell just saying today in Switzerland that he doesn't see a recession on the horizon. I mean, isn't that even more positive than when he said that? A month ago? I mean, well, I mean the effects these guys, they, they, missed, they missed the financial crisis. I can't, I don't Ooh. have any confidence that they can predict the recession any better than anybody else. Well, I, I'm not, I, was, I was about to say, I'm not sure that the bears to my stage left here are the <laughs> ones that, that are believing in Jerome Powell. I think a lot of people have some questions about the Fed's credibility in calling anything. And I don't think we listen to the Fed to talk about the economy. The Fed, um, by the, I think by definition of their mandate, should be a lagging policy you know, assessor. Uh, but the more important thing this week was that we had major reversals in a number of you know, downward trends in terms of risk. You had a reversal in the yuan. You had a reversal in the, in the British pound. You had EMFX was starting to get very, very scary reverse. And probably most notably is you stop this downward plunge in bond yields, which we've all um, made to assume that just because things are going a lot lower, it means the world is coming to an end. When, in fact, I think a lot of this has been related to the European Union and, and getting pulled down by bunds. There's no disputing that we've had some very mixed data. We've had both sides uh, 
of the manufacturing data, but then the ISM services, which is a big part of this economy, actually showed much surprise to the upside. The labor market was, if you look at the household survey, was actually, there's some components of it that were very, very strong. So we're not running out of gas anytime soon. We have a Fed that no matter what is accommodative. And, you know, and the bears have gone quiet for a couple of days. I mean, they have to. Yeah, so back to the markets, I think it's interesting to talk about some of those changes in kind of certain risk assets. I mean, if you look at the 10-year Treasury yield, it did trade 144 earlier this week. It's at 156. Yeah. It just feels like maybe that's like a tentative bottom. I think it's interesting, though, when you think about the S&P 500, we've talked about it. It has been a flight to quality among equity investors. But look at the Russell 2000, small caps. It really didn't have a great week. It really massively underperformed large caps. So that is kind of interesting to me. You know, the dollar, I think a lot of traders would have loved to have seen a bigger pullback with stocks coming back up. It was only about 1% off its highs of the week. And I still kind of believe we can sit here and talk about recession versus market correction. I think the best thing to happen would be for the S&P 500 to get back above those prior highs that we made in July and see how it acts up there. Because to your point, BK, every time that we have been above a prior high over the last 18 months, we've had pretty sharp corrections. So mm-hmm. the point is, can we get up there and stay and establish a new um, a new range? And more importantly, then we need some of the, we need the MAGA names other than Microsoft. We need them to confirm the new highs. They have not confirmed Amazon, Google, uh, and Apple have not confirmed one new high in the S&P since Q1 2018. Well, you also, the higher the market goes, the more likely the less, the, the, the more likely the president comes out and says we're not going to make a deal with China. That's happened every single Wait, time. The less likely he will come out right. and say and, and he well, has more negotiating power, right? He wants the stock he'll, market. He'll, he'll, he'll stick with not having a deal. Exactly. Right. Or, or he'll go with a harder, you know, he'll have a harder, harder line stance. in negotiating. So to Dan's point, I do think, let's say we make a new high. It, let's see what happens up there. Let's see if it holds. Let's see if we start to make some progress on the trade deal. There's a lot of things that have to happen for this market to rip a lot higher. Do we have a little bit of runway, though, between now and whenever those trade talks are, which are scheduled sometime in the first week of October? Or sure so? we do. And, and we do, especially in, in a world where Hong Kong, at least for the short run, has ironed out a lot of tension. That's another big event of yeah. this week. Let's be clear. And as we say, China goes into this Communist Party anniversary, which there's no room for anything. There's no room for anything to get in the way of that. So we do have a window. And, and it's very important that the market, which also, though, Daniel Wright, let's see what we do with this new trading range. But the old trading range was one we had to get through. And we also had to backfill to get the S&P ready to get back above that 29.35 to 45 level. After 25 sessions, we've done it. And we've got the, uh, the, I, the IYT. So transports, I think, which are maybe more cyclical in this environment than semis, were, were maybe the best tell of the week. But uh, it's not, you can't get runaway bullish here. But after all the bearishness we've had, sure. the market has come back above, and you saw those reversals. I think it gives you time. Yeah, you have to absolutely respect that. But Dan brought up the Russell, and it's interesting. This time last year, the Russell's making an all-time high, the IWM, <laughs> around 173 or so. And that never got back to confirm this recent high in the S&P. It didn't get anywhere close. And now here it is at 149. I've said a number of times, and I believe this, 145 is sort of your line in the sand in the IWM. And, it, again, it does not trade particularly well. So I guess the question is, and I'm not looking for something to back up my dogma clearly, but I will mention that, you know, the Russell through 145, in my opinion, it drags the S&P down. Can I ask you, though, a question? I mean, has the Russell really (laughs) traded well as the S&P 500 went to record highs? 
No, it hasn't. Earlier I mean, the the that's, that's been the kind so of the... So why, why, do we, why do we care that Russell's underperforming? Well, I, I, because I, it hasn't been a good because indicator. You know what? I think it's very sensitive to these moves in rates. It's very sensitive. It will be the, like some of these companies will be the first companies to feel the adverse effects of a slowing consumer or a CapEx um, freeze or any of the sorts of things that we're looking for. I think it's really important to remember as we talk about all of these things that the S&P 500 is up 19% of the year. You know, it's not like we're talking... You know, we talk about... Tim just mentioned all the bearishness. We were down 3.5% from an all-time high. Still up 15, 16% on the year. Um, So, you know, things are not bad. It's just really trying to figure out what is the risk reward. And I've been saying this now. I feel like a broken record. We have one up, two down risk reward. That's really what it's been for 18 months. And that's not a great environment to putting new capital work, um, especially when we're seeing that. Sorry, when you say one up, two down, what? Think about this. I mean, just think about the risk reward relationship. You think about every new high that we've had, Tim, since January 2018. It's been incremental. It's been a couple percent above the prior high, and then we've had these flushes. We've had a 7% flush. We've had a 12% flush. We've had a 20% flush from new highs. So the point, you get my point here? It's a little math. I do, but I'm I'm trying trying also to not make people think that we're saying one up, two back means that the S&P is down where it was in the last couple of years. The S&P has continued to make new highs. They've been incremental. They They haven't been bombastic, but they have been new highs. So, I mean, we keep going to this point where the stock market's going nowhere. But guess what? It's actually made highs. It hasn't been extraordinary. And yes, since Jan of 2018, I've quoted these numbers, too. We've been we've been but, largely sideways. So, so Jim, but, how, but, but semis, uh, a number of things have gone higher. So how's earnings growth been in those period after period? It that doesn't matter. About? No, but what we're saying is valuation is important because we're just seeing multiple expansion. That, I mean, that's really what it is. So that is a figure, a figure of risk, too, in a way. So we're not having the fundamentals confirm the higher valuation. The new highs are not confirming every because they're not done on big volume, and then we see these flushes lower. All that tells me is that that's just risk. It's not The risk is not to the upside. The risk is to downside. the downside. So I would say about the small caps, bringing back to that, they are also heavy regional banks, right? And so regional banks make their money off that net interest spread, which when the yield curve flattens is not that good. So if you're looking at the small caps as a leading indicator of what the yield curve might be, that you want to see those, those banks start ripping higher because then people are thinking that that yield curve is going to we were just discussing how this feels like the longest shortened uh, week of trading ever, right? It feels like an eight-day week or something in those four days. Eight days a week. Um, Great song. I, yeah, oh, that's a song. Beatles. Yeah. Beatles. Okay. So anyway, um, for next week, next week's a full week. Everybody's got to be back next week. You would think. I mean, you would think. So in other words, now. the hall. We're well, done what, with the halls, right? Done with the halls until Europeans until, are back. Until Everybody's Christmas, back. Which is around the corner. What by should the way. you be looking for? What's the first thing you're looking Monday for morning. on Monday morning? Monday morning. Listen, I guess the yuan is no longer in our crosshairs, so I would say rates are extraordinarily important. I think the guys on the desk would back me up on that. But but I also think in a, in a lot of ways you got to continue to watch the Russell. I mean I keep coming back to it. I think that led us up by you know I think the Russell leads by six months the S and P. Go back and look last summer where it topped out, and then when the S and P subsequently topped out, and look what we're doing now. So I would say the Russell. If you're not a believer in the Russell as an indicator. What would you look at? Uh, I think you want to see follow through on equities, right? We've had one we've had one big day today, a little bit. One big day. People potentially short covering. People probably just taking off a little bit of that kind of negative exposure. So you want to see follow through on big volume. That's what I want to see. And particularly if we are even going to break out to a new high, I want to see that on big volume. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Up next, a Beyond Beatdown, Beyond Meat getting smoked after one analyst has said, sell this stock. You'll hear from the man who made the call. And later, we are breaking down what you can expect from Apple's big product event next week. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. They got that on camera. <laughs> Welcome back to Fast Money, Apostle Sign of the Times in the IPO world. We work reportedly talking with advisors and shareholders about possibly scrapping its upcoming IPO. This comes after sources told CNBC earlier this week that the company slashed its valuation in half to less than $25 billion due to weak demand. So is WeWork on the road to scrapping its IPO? Could that be the best option, Dan? Well, it's interesting. The Wall Street Journal is reporting this. They're saying that the CEO is meeting with Matza, the head of SoftBank, and seeing what they could do with this thing. I mean, listen, here's the thing. We've had, you know, what, 100 almost 200 billion of tech IPOs come this year. Everyone knew that this was a controversial one, at least from the standpoint of business model, because how capital intensive it is. And then you have this huge ramp in valuation year over year. You know, who knows how it's going to go? I don't think there's a positive spin either way. If it comes and it's not a great deal, then we're dealing with like, look at, look at Lyft, look at Uber. They're making new lows every day. Do we want another name like that, a $20, $25 billion publicly traded company that's not making money that a lot of people are skeptical? I don't think so. But by the same token, if they can get an infusion from SoftBank or or some, you know, then then it kind of shores up one problem that this market has, in my opinion. Well, on top of all those issues, there are also the corporate governance issues. There are questions about the CEO. There are questions about the board, how diverse it is. And I'm a huge fan of the network, as you know. So not only am I a participant from time to time, I'm also an avid viewer. And recently on uh, in the Squawk Show in the morning, Mr. Sam Zell was on, if you recall, and he threw a lot of cold water on WeWork. So if Sam doesn't like it, why should I? But we mentioned the way to play all of this space. And again, I said it last night, I'll say it again. NASDAQ makes basically an all-time high today. And Dan ridicules me all the time about the exchanges, but although it's not in the equity space, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange continues to make all-time highs. And might I add, mm-hmm. isn't Terry Duffy going to be on our show in, in the, in the subsequent in, weeks? In That's going to be very exciting. Yes. Um, you can read more about WeWork's IPO plans from CNBC.com's Alex Sherman. That is up on our website. Let's turn now to another big IPO, Beyond Meat getting grilled after D.A. Davidson oh. initiated <laughs> coverage on the stock. With an underperform, Beyond Meat falling more than 3% on the day. Joining us now is the man who wrote that note, Brian Holland, senior research analyst at D.A. Davidson. Brian, welcome to you. Thank you. Um, so you think that the total addressable market is actually much smaller than what most people, most analysts are are thinking, and you're saying that it's even smaller than potentially the milk market? Yeah, so I think on a relative basis, that's right. Um, we view plant-based as a solution within a broader market. Uh, there are you know, roughly 30 to 50 million uh, people in the U.S. who are lactose intolerant. Only about 15 to 25 million identify as uh, non-meat eaters. That's important to us because the high-touch consumer in plant-based milk uh, represents about 60% of the purchase. So I think if you hold all else equal with respect to the behavior of the flexitarian or the occasional buyer, um, and you translate that from plant-based milk to meat, I think you get to you know a number that's probably about, at best, 75% um, of what we're seeing on a share basis in plant-based milk. Um, and then, frankly, it probably ends up being lower than that because meat is a much more fragmented market than milk. 
Could we uh, be at a point, uh, Brian, just to play devil's advocate, where there's more than just the flexitarian and the people who actually need the alternatives to meat, that there are people who want to eat these alternative meat products because they want to lessen their carbon footprint or for other environmental social reasons? Are we underestimating that cohort? No, I, I mean, I, I think that I think that market exists. Listen, I, I don't think plant-based uh, meat in particular is a fad. I think it's here. I think it's here to stay. Um, I think it will take a long time. I think it will be a slow build. And again, those those folks who are, are thinking about the environment um, and, and to the extent that that's part of their decision-making process, they're not necessarily a frequent buyer. Again, the category, most categories in food are, uh, you know, largely driven by the core audience, the folks who are going to go in and buy once a week, maybe once every two weeks. So I think when you're put, when you're comparing plant-based milk and, and plant-based meat, and, and you know that's that's what the the company's doing, so that's what mm -hmm. we're working with as a proxy. I think that's what's going to dictate this category. There will be folks who who will migrate over. I don't know that they migrate over in 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 such a uh, such a frequent uh, in a, a frequent manner, such that it would drive the kind of numbers that are being right. thrown out there right now. They'll be there, but they won't be there every week. Okay. Brian, thanks for uh, sharing that with us. We appreciate it. Brian Holland of DA Davidson with an underperform on Beyond Meat. His price target, by the way, is $130 a share. The heck's a flexitarian? Guy, you're, you I mean, you, you do yoga, right? So yeah. you eat vegetables sometimes and you meat? Isn't that just you normal? Regular Imagine meat you're... and alt meat, you don't have right? to find an alternative, but you can choose to find an alternative. You're not just sometimes. a regularitarian? No, it's like you. you no. You've had the impossible. Yeah, but I don't call myself. Then, I have. I like the impossible. I would not I think call it's you better than beyond. I would not consider myself a flexitarian. I, I sometimes I eat vegetables. Sometimes I eat meat. Sometimes I eat them both together. That's just what normal people do. Nonetheless, nonetheless, Beyond Meat held 150 today. Probably trading-wise, that's a good place to shoot against. What's interesting is I, I didn't hear him going against the competitive landscape at all. So in other words, my view is not – I'm not concerned about the addressable market. I think we, we are seeing this uh, – Kellogg, so, Hormel, yeah, I mean, Tyson. Th th that is the problem with the stock. That is why when you look at where these other companies trade, even in their best days, um, this is just the chip witch as far as I'm concerned. That was yeah. a good size sandwich, though. Thank you. That it was, was, it it was fantastic. Time. Everybody oh, had one, too. So did you the know, man, bar. Can flexitarians eat that? All right. Uh, more on Beyond Meat and that call on our website, CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. Here's what's coming up next. Netflix is under pressure as the streaming wars kick into high gear. What does the company need to do to stay on top? We'll debate it when Fast Money returns. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Netflix has been a big underperformer over the past few months, falling more than 18 percent. There could be even more pain ahead as Disney gets ready to unleash its new streaming service. But there might be uh, one big bright spot for Netflix. Julia Borson is in L.A. with more on the story. Hey, Julia. Well, Melissa, we're about two months away from the launch of Disney's streaming service, Disney Plus. And it's worth noting that we've seen quite a reversal of fortunes between Disney and Netflix. Over the past year, Disney shares have gained 27 percent, while Netflix stock has fallen by 16 percent. Now, Disney's market cap is now nearly double its streaming rival. Just a little over a year ago, Netflix briefly had a higher market cap than Disney. And now there are two new studies that project a shifting power dynamic. Digital TV research projects that Netflix will grow its subscriber base to 219 million by the year 2024. But its dominance will fall, with Amazon Prime growing to 127 million and Disney to 82 million subscribers over that same time period. So, in the face of shrinking market share, where will Netflix go to find growth, especially considering that Netflix's U.S. subscriber base shrank last quarter? Now, Ampere Analysis projects that the streamer will look overseas and could ramp up its investment in local language films and series in Australia, Poland, Germany, France, and the Netherlands, as well as Russia. Those are big Netflix markets with relatively few originals. Now, we also have to see what kind of threat other new streaming services will pose to Netflix. In addition to Disney+, Plus, next year, Warner Media is launching HBO Max. Then you have CNBC's parent, NBC Universal getting ready to launch its ad-supported streaming service. And then don't forget that Apple TV, it's expected to launch its Apple TV service by the end of this year. We may learn more about that Apple streaming service, its pricing, as well as a precise launch date at an Apple iPhone event that is scheduled for Tuesday. Guys, back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson in L.A. Now, Tim flagged Netflix and missed out on this week's rally. So what do you think? I just think this has been a trend for, for a stock, a high multiple stock, that on some level has been totally executing, except for its best days in terms of, I think, stealing market share and having the ability to almost price their service. In other words, when they started to raise prices, people were very concerned and expect there possibly some churning. Um, they, they actually proved that quite wrong, except for when Disney pops in with a Disney Plus that is an offering that's very, very competitive. Uh, I think the most important thing is, is multiple. I don't think I don't think Netflix is failing per se, although I, I don't think they've proven that they can be cash flow positive. I think Disney has come in here and re-rated, and people have started to question really what I'm that, paying for. That's the main point. Earlier this year, when they said they were going to actually have uh, three and a half billion dollars in negative free cash flow, a half a billion more than what they had previously forecast. That was the issue when they're facing down these huge competitive threats when basically a lot of their content is coming off. So what, what Julia just said is, oh, yeah, they can go to these places that are underpenetrated with original content. Mm-hmm. But for them to create that original content, they need to have more, a, a bigger negative key, uh, free cash flow number. So it just doesn't work when Disney has that flexibility. And then all of those Future competitors are taking their content off the platform. Very quietly, the other player in this, or sort of in this space, I mean, Roku's up 70, 70% in a month. It's a staggering move in, on the back of what was a pretty good move in the first place off a pretty decent quarter a month ago. So I think a lot of analysts raising their price target. I think Roku's the way to play it. All right. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Tim. Yeah, uh, final trade here. So, no, no, no. Transport's had a big week. Sorry, I was just snapping to attention. That was such a great segment on Netflix. Transport's had a big turnaround this week. I think FedEx in a trough valuation is something that's kind of interesting here. It's all happened Clearly. to us, right? Yeah, it, it happens every, every once one in a while, us. especially the flexitarian. Uh, SMH, I think that one's gone a little too far too fast to sell that on Monday. Dan? Uh, Apple, stay tuned to OA. We're going to talk about how to play it into next week's iPhone event. 
I don't know what could be better. Rainy Friday, you get it'll get some blankets on and watch a big OA coming some up in blankets. It's the time of year, Tim. Getting okay. a chill a in the air. There. There's a little there. chill a in the air. Interesting. Well, that's what you I just said. Twitter, shaking off a lot of bad news on its way higher. That does it for us. Don't go anywhere. Options Action's up next. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.